A Treatise on the Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, Part 2 Showing what are no certain signs that religious affections are truly gracious or that they are not. If anyone, on the reading of what has just been now said, is ready to acquit himself and say, I am not one of those who have no religious affections, I am often greatly moved with the consideration of the great things of religion. Let him not content himself with this, that he has religious affections. For as we have observed before, as we ought not to reject and condemn all affections as though true religion did not at all consist in affection, so, on the other hand, we ought not to approve of all, as though every one that was religiously affected had true grace, and was therein the subject of the saving influences of the Spirit of God. The right way is to distinguish among religious affections, between one sort and another. Therefore, let us now endeavor to do this, and in order to do it, I would do two things. I would mention some things which are no signs one way or the other, either that affections are such as true religion consists in, or that they are otherwise, that we may be guarded against judging of affections by false signs. Number two, I would observe some things wherein those affections which are spiritual and gracious differ from those which are not so, and may be distinguished and known. First, I would take notice of some things which are no signs that affections are gracious or that they are not. Section 1. It is no sign one way or other that religious affections are very great or raised very high. Some are ready to condemn all high affections. If persons appear to have their religious affections raised to an extraordinary pitch, they are prejudiced against them and determine that they are delusions without further inquiry. But if, as before proved, true religion lies very much in religious affections, then it follows that if there be a great deal of true religion, there will be great religious affections. If true religion in the hearts of men be raised to a great height, divine and holy affections will be raised to a great height. Love is an affection, but will any Christian say men ought not to love God and Jesus Christ in a high degree? And will any say we ought not to have a very great hatred of sin and a very deep sorrow for it? Or that we ought not to exercise a high degree of gratitude to God for the mercies we receive of Him and the great things He has done for the salvation of fallen men? Or that we should not have very great and strong desires after God and holiness? Is there any who will profess that his affections in religion are great enough, and will say, I have no cause to be humble that I am no more affected with the things of religion than I am. I have no reason to be ashamed that I have no greater exercises of love to God and sorrow for sin and gratitude for the mercies which I have received. Who is there that will go and bless God that he is affected enough with what he has read and heard of the wonderful love of God to worms and rebels, and given his only begotten Son to die for them, and of the dying love of Christ, and will pray that he may not be affected with them in any higher degree, because high affections are improper and very unlovely in Christians, being enthusiastical and ruinous to true religion. Our text plainly speaks of great and high affections when it speaks of rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
Here the most superlative expressions are used which language will afford. The scriptures often require us to exercise very high affections. Thus, in the first and great commandment of the law, there is an accumulation of expressions, as though words were wanting to express the degree in which we ought to love God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. So the saints are called upon to exercise high degrees of joy. Rejoice as Christ to his disciples, and be exceeding glad. Matthew 5.12 Let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Psalm 68.3 In the book of Psalms, the saints are often called upon to shout for joy, and in Luke 6.23, to leap for joy. So they are abundantly called upon to exercise high degrees of gratitude for mercies, to praise God with all their hearts, with hearts lifted up in the ways of the Lord, their souls magnifying the Lord, singing His praises, talking of His wondrous works, declaring His doings, and so on. We find the most eminent saints in Scripture often professing high affections. Thus the psalmist mentions his love as if it were unspeakable. Psalm 119.97 Oh, how love I thy law! So he expresses a great degree of hatred of sin. Psalm 139.21 and 22 Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with them that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. He also expresses a high degree of sorrow for his sin. He speaks of his sins going over his head as a heavy burden that was too heavy for him, of his roaring all the day, his moisture being turned into the drought of summer, and his bones being as it were broken with sorrow. So he often expresses great degrees of spiritual desires and a multitude of the strongest expressions which can be conceived of such as his longing, his soul thirsting as a dry and thirsty land where no water is, his panting, his flesh and heart crying out, his soul breaking for the longing it hath, and so on. He expresses the exercise of great and extreme grief for the sins of others. Psalm 119.136 Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. In verse 53, Horror has taken hold of me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. He expresses high exercises of joy. Psalm 21.1 The king shall joy in thy strength and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Psalm 71.23 My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee. Psalm 63, 3-7 Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. 
The Apostle Paul expresses high exercises of affection. Thus he expresses the exercise of pity and concern for others' good, even to anguish of heart, a great, fervent, and abundant love, earnest and longing desires, and exceeding joy. He speaks of the exultation and triumphs of his soul, his earnest expectation and hope, his abundant tears and the travails of his soul, in pity, grief, earnest desires, godly jealousy, and fervent zeal, in many places that have been cited already, and which therefore I need not repeat. John the Baptist expressed great joy, John 3.39. Those blessed women who anointed the body of Jesus are represented as in a very high exercise of religious affection at the resurrection of Christ. Matthew 28.8 And they departed from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. It is often foretold of the church of God in her future happy seasons on earth that they shall exceedingly rejoice. Psalm 89:15 and 16 They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. Zechariah 9, verse 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh and so on. The same is represented in other places innumerable. And because high degrees of joy are the proper and genuine fruits of the gospel of Christ, therefore the angel calls this gospel good tidings of great joy that should be to all people. The saints and angels in heaven who have religion in its highest perfection are exceedingly affected with what they behold and contemplate of God's perfection and works. They are all as a pure heavenly flame of fire, in their love and in the greatness and strength of their joy and gratitude. Their praises are represented as a voice of many waters, and as a voice of a great thunder. Now the only reason why their affections are so much higher than the holy affections of saints on earth is, they see things more according to their truth, and have their affections more conformed to the nature of things. And therefore, if religious affections and men here below are but of the same nature and kind with theirs, the higher they are and the nearer they are to theirs in degree, the better, because therein they will be so much the more conformed to truths as theirs are. From these things it certainly appears that the existence of religious affections in a very high degree is no evidence that they are not such as have the nature of true religion. Therefore, they greatly err who condemn persons as enthusiasts merely because their affections are very high. On the other hand, it is no evidence that religious affections are of a spiritual and gracious nature because they are great. It is very manifest by the Holy Scripture, our sure and infallible rule in things of this nature, that there are very high religious affections which are not spiritual and saving. The Apostle Paul speaks of affections in the Galatians which had been exceedingly elevated, but yet he feared that they were vain and had come to nothing, Galatians 4.15. Where is the blessedness he spake of? For I bear you record, that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. And in the eleventh verse he tells them he was afraid of them, lest he had bestowed upon them labor in vain. So the children of Israel were greatly affected with God's mercy to them, when they had seen how wonderfully he had wrought for them at the Red Sea, where they sang God's praise, though they soon forgot his works. 
They were greatly affected again at Mount Sinai when they saw the marvelous manifestations God made of himself there, and seemed mightily engaged in their minds, and with great forwardness made answer when God proposed his holy covenant to them, saying, All that the Lord has spoken will we do, and be obedient. But how soon was there an end to all this mighty forwardness and engagedness of affection? How quickly were they turned aside after other gods, rejoicing and shouting around their golden calf? Great multitudes who were affected with the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead were elevated to a high degree and made a mighty stir when Jesus very soon after entered into Jerusalem, exceedingly magnifying Christ as though the ground were not good enough for the ass he rode to tread upon, and therefore cut down branches of palm trees and strode them in the way. Yea, they pulled off their garments and spread them and cried with loud voices, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So as to make the whole city ring again and put all into an uproar. We learn by the evangelist John that the reason why the people made this ado was because they were affected with the miracle of raising Lazarus. John 12:18. This vast multitude crying Hosanna gave occasion to the Pharisees to say, Behold, the world has gone after him. John 12:19. But Christ had at that time but few true disciples. And how quickly was this fervor at an end? All is extinct when this Jesus stands bound with a mock robe and a crown of thorns, to be derided, spit upon, scourged, condemned, and executed. Indeed, there was a great and loud outcry concerning him, among the multitude then as well as before, but of a very different kind. It is not then, Hosanna, Hosanna, but crucify, crucify. In a word, it was the concurring voice of all orthodox divines that there may be religious affections raised to a very high degree, and yet nothing of true religion. Section 2 it is no sign that affections have the nature of true religion, or that they have not, that they have great effects on the body. All affections whatsoever have in some respect or degree an effect on the body. As was observed before, such is our nature, and such are the laws of union of soul and body, that the mind can have no lively or vigorous exercise without some effect upon the body. So subject is the body to the mind, and so much do its fluids, especially the animal spirits, attend the motions and exercises of the mind, that there cannot be so much as an intense thought without an effect upon them. Yea, it is questionable whether an embodied soul ever so much as thinks one thought or has any exercise at all, but there is some corresponding motion or alteration of the fluids in some part of the body. But universal experience shows that the exercise of the affections have, in a special manner, a tendency to some sensible effect upon the body. And if all affections have some effect on the body, we may then well suppose the greater those affections and the more vigorous their exercises are, other circumstances being equal, the greater will be the effect on the body. 
Hence it is not to be wondered at that very great and strong exercises of the affections should have great effects on the body, and therefore, seeing there are very great affections, both common and spiritual, hence it is not to be wondered at that great effects on the body should arise from both these kinds of affections, and consequently these effects are no signs that the affections they arise from are of one kind or the other. Great effects on the body certainly are no sure evidences that affections are spiritual, for we see them oftentimes arise from great affections about temporal things, and when religion is no way concerned in them. And if great affections about things purely natural may have these effects, I know not by what rule we should determine that high affections about religious things, which arise in like manner from nature, cannot have the like effect. Nor, on the other hand, do I know of any rule to determine that gracious affections, when raised as high as any natural affections, with equally strong and vigorous exercises, cannot have a great effect on the body. No such rule can be drawn from reason. I know of no reason why a being affected with a view of God's glory should not cause a body to faint, as well as being affected with a view of Solomon's glory. And no such rule has as yet been produced from the scripture. None has ever been found in all the late controversies about things of this nature. There is a great power in spiritual affections. We read of the power which worketh in Christians, and of the Spirit of God being in them, as the Spirit of power, and of the effectual working of His power in them, yea, of the working of God's mighty power in them. But man's nature is weak. Flesh and blood are represented in Scripture as exceeding weak, and particularly with respect to its unfitness for great spiritual and heavenly operations and exercises. Matthew 26.41, 1 Corinthians 15.43, and 50. The text prefixed to this discourse speaks of joy unspeakable and full of glory, and who that considers what man's nature is, and what the nature of the affections are, can reasonably doubt, but that such unutterable and glorious joys may be too great and mighty for weak dust and ashes, so as to be considerably overbearing to it. It is evident by the scripture that discoveries of God's glory, when given in a great degree, have a tendency by affecting the mind to overbear the body. The scripture teaches us that if these views should be given to such a degree as they are given in heaven, the weak frame of the body could not subsist under it, and that no man can in that manner see God and live. The knowledge which the saints have of God's beauty and glory in this world, and those holy affections that arise from it, are of the same nature and kind with what the saints are the subjects of in heaven, differing only in degree and circumstances. What God gives them here is a foretaste of heavenly happiness and an earnest of their future inheritance, and who shall limit God in his giving this earnest or say, he shall give so much of the inheritance, such a part of the future reward, as an earnest of the whole and no more. And seeing God has taught us in his word that the whole reward is such, that it would at once destroy the body, is it not too bold a thing for us to set bounds to the sovereign God, or to say that in giving the earnest of this reward he shall never give so much of it, as in the least to diminish the strength of the body, when God has nowhere thus limited himself? The psalmist speaking of his vehement religious affections and of an effect in his flesh or body, besides what was in his soul, expressly distinguishes one from the other. Psalm 84.2 My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord.
My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Here is a plain distinction between the heart and the flesh as being each affected. So Psalm 63.1 My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Here also is an evident design distinction between the soul and the flesh. The prophet Habakkuk speaks of his body being overborne by a sense of the majesty of God. Habakkuk 3.16 When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. So the psalmist, Psalm 119.120, My flesh trembleth for fear of thee. That such ideas of God's glory as are given sometimes even in this world have a tendency to overbear the body is evident, because the scripture gives us an account that this has actually been the effect of those external manifestations which God made of himself to some of the saints in order to give them an idea of his majesty and glory. Dan Daniel, giving an account of an external representation of the glory of Christ, says Daniel 10.8, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned into corruption, and I retained no strength. And the Apostle John, given an account of a similar manifestation made to him, says, Revelations 1.17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It is in vain to say here that these were only external manifestations of the glory of Christ. For though this be true, yet the use of these representations was to give an idea of the thing represented, the true divine glory and majesty of Christ. They were made use of only as significations of this spiritual glory, and thus undoubtedly they received and improved them, and were affected by them. According to the end for which God intended these outward signs, they received by them a great and lively apprehension of the real glory and majesty of God's nature, of which they were signs, and thus were greatly affected, their souls swallowed up, and their bodies overborne. And I think they are very bold and daring, who will say that God cannot or shall not give the like affecting apprehensions of the same real glory of his nature to none of his saints without the intervention of such external shadows. Before I leave this head, I would further observe that it is plain the scripture often makes use of bodily effects to express the strength of holy and spiritual affections, such as trembling, groaning, being sick, crying out, panting and fainting. Now if it be supposed that these are only figurative expressions to represent the degree of affection, yet I hope all will allow that they are suitable figures to represent the high degree of those spiritual affections, which I see not how they would be, if those spiritual affections are the proper effects and sad tokens of false affections, and the delusion of the devil. I cannot think God would commonly make use of things which are very alien from spiritual affections, and are shrewd marks of the hand of Satan, and smell strong of the bottomless pit, as beautiful figures, to represent the high degree of holy and heavenly affections. Section 3 it is no sign that affections are truly gracious, or that they are not, that they cause those who have them to be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of religious things. There are many persons who, if they see this and others, are greatly prejudiced against them. 
their being so full of talk is with them a sufficient ground to condemn them as Pharisees and ostentatious hypocrites. On the other hand, there are many who, if they see this effect in any, are very ignorantly and imprudently forward at once to determine that they are the true children of God under the saving influences of the Spirit, and speak of it as a great evidence of a new creature. Such in one's mouth, say they, is now open. He used to be slow to speak, but now he is full and free. He is free now to open his heart and tell his experience and declare the praises of God. It comes from him as free as water from a fountain and the like. And especially are they captivated into a confident persuasion that they are savingly wrought upon if they are not only free and abundant, but very affectionate and earnest in their talk. But this is a fruit of little judgment and short experience, as events abundantly show, and is a mistake into which persons often run through their trusting their own wisdom and making their own notions their rule instead of the Holy Scripture. Though the Scripture be full of rules, both how we should judge of our own state and also how we should be conducted in our own opinions of others, Yet we have nowhere any rule by which to judge ourselves or others to be in a good estate from any such effect. For this is but the religion of the tongue, and what is in the scripture represented by the leaves of a tree, which, though the tree ought not to be without them, yet are nowhere given as an evidence of the goodness of the tree. That persons are disposed to be abundant in talking of religious things may be from a good cause and it may be from a bad one. It may be because their hearts are very full of holy affections, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And it may be because persons' hearts are very full of affection, which is not holy, for still out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. It is very much the nature of the affections, of whatever kind and whatever objects they are exercised about, if they are strong, to dispose persons to be very much in speaking of that with which they are much affected, and not only to speak much, but to speak very earnestly and fervently, and therefore persons talking abundantly and very fervently about the things of religion can be an evidence of no more than this that they are much affected with the things of religion. But this may be, as has already been showed, without any grace. That which men are greatly affected with, while the high affection lasts, they will be earnestly engaged about, and will be likely to show that earnestness in their talk and behavior, as a greater part of the Jews and all Judah and Galilee did for a while about John the Baptist's preaching and baptism, when they were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. A mighty stir was made all over the land, and among all sorts of persons about this great prophet and his ministry. And so the multitude in like manner often manifested a great earnestness, a mighty engagingness of spirit in everything that was external about Christ, his preaching and miracles, being astonished at his doctrine, anon with joy receiving the word. They followed him sometimes night and day, leaving meat and drink and sleep to hear him. Once they followed him into the wilderness, fasting three days, going to hear him, sometimes extolling him to the clouds, saying, Never man spake like this man, being fervent and earnest in what they said. 
But what did these things come to in the greater part of them? A person may be overfull of talk of his own experiences, falling upon it everywhere and in all companies, and when so, it is rather a dark sign than a good one. A tree that is overfull of leaves seldom bears much fruit, and a cloud, though to appearance very pregnant and full of water, if it brings with it over much wind, seldom affords much rain to the dry and thirsty earth, which very thing the Holy Spirit is pleased several times to make use of, to represent a great show of religion with the mouth, without answerable fruit in the life. Proverbs 25.14 Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. And the Apostle Jude, speaking of some in the primitive times that crept in unawares among the saints, and having a great show of religion, were for a while not suspected. These are clouds, says he, without water, carried about of winds. Jude, verse 4 and 12. And the Apostle Peter, speaking of the same, says, 2 Peter 2.17, These are clouds without water, carried with a tempest. False affections, if they are equally strong, are much more forward to declare themselves untrue, because it is the nature of false religion to affect show and observation, as it was with the Pharisees. The famous experimental divine Thomas Shepard says, quote, A Pharisee's trumpet shall be heard to the town's end, when simplicity walks through the town unseen. Hence a man will sometimes covertly commend himself, and myself ever comes in, and tells you a long story of conversion, and an hundred to one is some lie or other slip not out with it. Why, the secret meaning is, I pray, admire me, hence complain of wants and weaknesses. Pray, think what a broken-hearted Christian I am, in quote, parable of the ten virgins. And holy John Flavel says thus, quote, O reader, if thy heart were right with God, and thou didst not cheat thyself with a vain profession, thou wouldst have frequent business with God, which thou wouldst be loath thy dearest friend or thy wife of thy bosom should be privy to. Religion doth not lie open to all, to the eyes of men. Observed duties maintain our credit, but secret duties maintain our life. It was the saying of a heathen about his secret correspondency with his friend, What need the world to be acquainted with it? Thou and I are theater enough to each other. There are enclosed pleasures in religion which none but renewed spiritual souls do feelingly understand. End quote. John Flavel's Touchstone of Sincerity. Section 4 it is no sign that affections are gracious or that they are otherwise that persons did not excite them by their own endeavors. There are many in these days who condemn all affections which are excited in a way that seems not to be the natural consequence of the faculties and principles of human nature in such circumstances and under such means, but to be from the influence of some extrinsic and supernatural power upon their minds. How greatly is a doctrine of the inward experience or sensible perceiving of the immediate power and operation of the Spirit of God been reproached and ridiculed by many of late? 
They say, the manner of the Spirit of God is to cooperate in a silent, secret, and undiscernible way with the use of means and our own endeavors, so that there is no distinguishing by sense between the influences of the Spirit of God and the natural operations of the faculties of our own minds. And it is true that for any to expect to receive the saving influences of the Spirit of God, while they neglect a diligent improvement of the appointed means of grace, is unreasonable presumption. And to expect that the Spirit of God will savingly operate upon their minds without the use of means, as subservient to the effect, is enthusiastical. It is also undoubtedly true that the Spirit of God is very various in the manner and circumstances of its operations, and that sometimes he operates in a way more secret and gradual, and from smaller beginnings than at others. But if there be indeed a power entirely different from and beyond our power, or the power of all means and instruments, and above the power of nature, which is requisite in order to the production of saving grace in the heart, according to the general profession of the country, then certainly it is in no wise unreasonable to suppose that this effect should very frequently be produced after such a manner as to make it very manifest and sensible that it is so. If grace be indeed owing to the powerful and efficacious operation of an extrinsic agent, or divine efficient out of ourselves, why is it unreasonable to suppose it should seem to be so to them who are the subjects of it? Is it a strange thing that it should seem to be as it is, when grace in the heart indeed is not produced by our strength, nor is the effect of the natural power of our own faculties or any means or instruments, but is properly the workmanship and production of the Spirit of the Almighty, is it a strange thing that it should seem to them who are subjects of it agreeable to truth and not contrary to truth? If persons tell of effects that seem to them not to be from the natural power or operation of their minds, but from the supernatural power of some other agent, should it at once be looked upon as a sure evidence of their being under a delusion, because things seem to them to be as they are, for this is the objection which is made. It is looked upon as a clear evidence that the apprehensions and affections that many persons have are not really from such a cause, because they seem to them to be from that cause. They declare that what they are conscious of seems to them evidently not to be from themselves, but from the mighty power of the Spirit of God, and others from hence condemn them, and determine that what they experience is not from the Spirit of God, but from themselves, or from the devil. Thus unreasonably are multitudes treated at this day by their neighbors. If it be indeed so, as the Scriptures abundantly teaches, that grace in the soul is so the effect of God's power, that it is fitly compared to those effects which are furthest from being owing to any strength in the subject, such as generation, or a being begotten and resurrection, or a being raised from the dead, in creation, or being brought out of nothing into being, and that is an effect wherein the mighty power of God is greatly glorified, and the exceeding greatness of His power manifested then what account can be given of it that the Almighty in so great a work of his power should so carefully hide his power that the subjects of it should be able to discern nothing of it? Or what reason or revelation have any to determine that he does so? 
If we may judge by the scripture, this is not agreeable to God's manner in his operations and dispensations, but on the contrary, it is God's manner, in the great works of his power and mercy, to make his hand visible, and his power conspicuous, and men's dependence on him most evident, that no flesh should glory in his presence, that God alone might be exalted, and that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of man, and that Christ's power might be manifested in our weakness, and none might say, Mine own hand has saved me. So it was in most of those temporal salvations which God wrought for Israel of old, which were types of the salvation of his people from their spiritual enemies. So in the redemption of Israel from their Egyptian bondage, he redeemed them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and that his power might be the more conspicuous, he suffered Israel first to be brought into the most helpless and forlorn circumstances. So in the great redemption by Gideon, God would have his army diminished to a handful, and they without any other arms than trumpets and lamps and earthen pitchers. So in the deliverance of Israel from Goliath, by a stripling, with a sling and a stone. So it was in that great work of God, his calling the Gentiles, after that the world by wisdom knew not God, and all the endeavors of philosophers to reform the world had failed, and it was become abundantly evident that the world had no effectual help but the mighty power of God. And so it was most of the conversions of particular persons recorded in the history of the New Testament. They were not affected in that silent, secret, gradual, and insensible manner which is now insisted on, but with those manifest evidences of a supernatural power, wonderfully and suddenly and a great change, which in these days are looked upon as certain signs of delusion and enthusiasm. The Apostle in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19 speaks of God's enlightening the minds of Christians, and so bringing them to believe in Christ, to the end that they might know the exceeding greatness of his power to them who believe. The words are, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, and so on. Now when the Apostle speaks of their being thus the subjects of his power, and their enlightening and effectual calling, to the end that they might know what his mighty power was to them who believe, he can mean nothing else than that they might know by experience. But if the saints know this power by experience, then they feel it, discern it, and are conscious of it, as sensibly distinguishable from the natural operations of their own minds. But this is not agreeable to a notion of God operating so secretly and undiscernibly that it cannot be known that they are the subjects of any extrinsic influence at all, otherwise than as they may argue it from scripture assertions, which is a different thing from knowing it by experience. So that it is very unreasonable and unscriptural to determine that affections are not from the gracious operations of God's Spirit, because they are sensibly not from the persons themselves who are the subjects of them. On the other hand, it is no evidence that affections are gracious, that they are not purposely produced by those who are the subjects of them, or that they arise in their minds in a manner which they cannot account for. 
There are some who make this an argument in their own favor when speaking of what they have experienced. I am sure I did not make it myself. It was a fruit of no contrivance or endeavor of mine. It came when I thought nothing of it. If I might have the world for it, I cannot make it again when I please. And hence they determine that what they have experienced must be from the mighty influence of the Spirit of God, and is of a saving nature, but very ignorantly and without grounds. What they have experienced may indeed not be from themselves directly, but may be from the operation of an invisible agent, some spirit besides their own, but it does not thence follow that it was from the Spirit of God. There are other spirits who have influence on the minds of men besides the Holy Ghost. We are directed not to believe every spirit, but to try the spirits whether they be of God. There are many false spirits exceeding busy with men who often transform themselves into angels of light, and in many wonderful ways with great subtlety and power mimic the operations of the Spirit of God. And there are many of Satan's operations which are very distinguishable from the voluntary exercises of men's own minds. They are so in those dreadful and horrid suggestions and blasphemous injections with which he follows many persons, also in vain and fruitless frights and terrors, of which he is the author. And the power of Satan may be as immediate and as evident in false comforts and joys as in terrors and horrid suggestions, and oftentimes is so in fact. It is not in men's power to put themselves into such raptures as those of the Anabaptists in Germany, and many other raving enthusiasts like them. Besides, it is to be considered that persons may have impressions on their minds, which may not be of their own producing, nor from an evil spirit, but from a common influence of the Spirit of God. And the subjects of such impressions may be of the number of those we read of, Hebrews 6, 4-5, that are once enlightened, and taste of the heavenly gift, and are made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and taste the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, and yet may be wholly unacquainted with those better things that accompany salvation, and where neither a good nor evil spirit have any immediate hand, persons, especially such as are of a weak and vapory habit of body, and the brain easily susceptible of impressions, may have strange apprehensions and imaginations, and strong affections attending them, unaccountably arising, which are not voluntarily produced by themselves. We see that such persons are liable to such impressions about temporal things, and there is equal reason why they should be about spiritual things. As a person asleep has dreams of which he is not the voluntary author, so may such persons in like manner be the subjects of involuntary impressions when they are awake. Section 5. It is no sign that religious affections are truly holy and spiritual, or that they are not, that they come to the mind in a remarkable manner with texts of Scripture. It is no sign that affections are not gracious, that they are occasioned by Scripture's soul coming to mind, provided it be the Scripture itself, or the truth which the Scripture so brought contains and teaches. That is the foundation of the affection, and not merely or mainly the sudden and unusual manner of its coming to the mind. But on the other hand, 
neither is it any sign that affections are gracious, that they arise on occasion of scriptures brought suddenly and wonderfully to the mind, whether those affections be fear or hope, joy or sorrow, or any other. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.